Хей, hey, Том! Привет, Стив! Ребята, я надеюсь, у вас получится отличное шоу. Вы же всегда заставляете меня смеяться. Welcome, everybody, to Masters of Profundication. I'm Tom Witham. I'm Steve Piles. And we've made it to episode five. Yeah, it's unprecedented in the last five weeks. weeks <laughs> in a row. <laughs> Let's celebrate. Celebrate something. Yeah. Yeah. Let the booze flow. I haven't. It's kind of sad because I have not had any alcohol whatsoever in our latest run. This newest season. Wait a second. So, you're always drinking. Not, I haven't had beer in, I don't even know how long, months. Well, these are hard times. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Is that it? That's, that's, that's why. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> uh, I got asked that question recently. When you guys are recording your podcast, are you drinking a lot? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I want to be hammered one episode. I, I Seriously, I want to do an episode where we just get sloppy drunk. Just five years deep before we even start, at least. Well, one of us should be the designated podcaster. No, no. No, no, we should because just... Because there's nothing worse than having two people and one's drunk off their ass and the other one isn't because the one that's not is going to get real annoyed real quick. <laughs> but if you're both drunk or if we get a third person or if you're a fourth person and all four people are just hammered, <laughs> ah, you, that's a thing of beauty. Completely talking over each other. Yeah, <clears throat> yes, no. We could make a signal. We could make a drunk man signal. Like if I wait, right. yeah, and we'll then be... I do this, and I go up and down, but left to right, but not right to left, that means I'm going to talk. But if I go left to right, that means I want to say something, and then somebody else says something else really quick. See? It'll work. It's not complicated Simple. whatsoever. Yeah. Simple procedure. Especially for drunk people. Like we did a porno episode. We could do a drunk episode. There's no sky's the limit here. Um, really? I didn't put a disclaimer on it. I just... My disclaimer was, Mom, don't listen to this episode. <laughs> it's called Perf, Perf Corner, right? So, <laughs> Right, but one of the tags in it is pornography. So anybody who is looking for podcasts and just types in pornography <laughs> podcast. You're welcome. Now that you're a fan and you're going to yeah. follow this religiously. Welcome. We didn't get nearly the uh, controversial uh, listeners or the, the people who are chiming or finding us because we said not to listen to it. <laughs> Well, you said for mom not to listen to it, so we got a lot of moms maybe jumped on board, like, ooh, I, what am I not supposed to hear? But everybody else was like, I'm not a mom, I'm fine. Speaking of moms, happy Mother's Day to people, moms. Pretty close. A couple hours. So we're, apparently my family's doing an experiment tomorrow. My uncle's setting up a Zoom. Oh, you're going to Zoom? And the whole family's going to Zoom at like one o'clock tomorrow on Mother's Day. That sounds Awesome. It's going to be a trip, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Talk about people talking over each other. It's going to be long bouts of silence where nobody knows what to say, and then punctuated by everybody saying something at once. Guaranteed. <laughs> well, you should record it. I should. I have never used Zoom, but I want to I want to figure it out before we start like to make a wacky background or something. I don't know. <laughs> I want to to do that. They do. They do have some pretty silly backgrounds. I've seen some of the fun backgrounds since the people have been working from home. You can go to YouTube and find some pretty silly ones. There's this one where a guy had created a background 
where it's a video of himself bringing himself some tea. <laughs> oh, I, I actually did see that, yeah. You did, yeah. That's yeah. pretty clever. I like that. <laughs> pretty good. Speaking I don't think of... I'll put that much work into it, though. Holy crap. I'm not that ambitious. Well, there are some pretty good ones, anyway, that come with yeah. the software. I get to see them every once in a while when my kids were doing the Zoom classroom, and they don't care about what the teacher's saying. They just want to play, you know, get the background just right and yeah. have something silly. <clears throat> Speaking of quarantine, I went to... Uh, I went into town today and got some shopping done. I went to Trader Joe's, and I'm telling you right now, those folks are militant about their social distancing. <laughs> Did they like force you in like the lines going up the aisles and down the aisles? Like everybody's following those or what? Well, I think that, that the people who shop at Trader Joe's, it's kind of a like I don't know, I I consider them like the left leaning, you know, crunchy granola <laughs> hippie anti-gun crowd you know anti-police anti you know that type of thing and um it's funny i, know, I noticed you didn't say liberal thank you i appreciate well, that i that was a conscious choice you're welcome yes yes <laughs> but, um when there is a pandemic on those people become the in your face gun toting <laughs> like don't care about your feelings you will social distance. And <laughs> so I was there in line and there was a gentleman in line who was refusing to wear a mask. Uh Oh, and it was going down. <laughs> they weren't going to have any of it. Like no. they, as the customers or like the store personnel themselves, the store personnel were currently, they, by the time I made it in, cause I waited in line, there was, there was a pretty long line, but it moved fast. And there was a gentleman in line that wasn't wearing a mask and had no intention of wearing a mask. And um, as a American citizen, I have to say that he shouldn't be forced to wear a mask. But also, it's their private property, and they can say, "No, you're not coming in." Yeah, sure. I, I respect that as well. Right. But they were at, when I was the first person in line ready to go in. They were circling up a posse. They were they were, <laughs> they were putting a, a posse of um, air quotes of Tuffies of, <laughs> of tough Trader Joe's employees to oh, go God. and remove the gentleman we, from the line. We got Claude here. He can bench press 150 pounds. You might <laughs> want to put your mask on, okay? That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, forget the fact that he's got, you know, 16 piercings and yeah. <laughs> like blue man bun. But uh, he, spacers he's a, in his ears are like big enough to put his fist through. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to mess with that guy. Ah. <laughs> he'll he'll move you right from this line, bub. He does 12 crunches every day. He'll fuck you up. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I made it into the store, and I didn't get to see how it played out. I really wanted to see how it was going to go. Um, but, you know, that's just it's the way they are, man. And I went to uh, Hannaford right there on Forest Ave in Portland, which is like you're either – a transient or you're a hippie mm. and they weren't playing around man they like i was standing in line texting and the line moved and somebody was like yelling at me like oh, to move. yeah it was my turn like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know i just ignored them but it's it still it was like that person would never have said that to me they probably would you know i who knows i i just that, maybe nope. maybe I think that that granola hippie group is just too weak, but <laughs> you just want to turn around. It's like I will eat you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And it's not even that. It's just like, pick a side, man. You're either like timid or you're <laughs> alpha. You can't be both. Because it's it's the, it's that world now. Like this, I am the one that gets to call the shots. I am the one that is on the right side of history or something. Yeah. So I feel bold in my public, uh, you know, my public utterances. <laughs> you keep your utterances to yourself. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I've thought the one time I've gone shopping so far, because I've got my life up in such a way that I barely need to shop for anything ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went once a couple weeks ago, and I, I didn't even know about the fucking arrows on the floor showing one-way aisles and all that crap. No idea that was even a thing. I knew about the like the circles to stand on when you're in line for distance and shit like that, but the arrows, I had no idea. And I walked in, I had a mask, but... And, the, and some people in the parking lot had it, so I put it on. But as soon as I walked in the store, I saw at least 50%, if not better, of people weren't wearing the mask. So I was like, fuck this shit. I took it right off. <laughs> Started walking the aisles like I normally do. Turned the corner, saw an arrow. I'm like, what the hell? I look up, and some guy's looking at me because he's going the right way, and I'm going the wrong way. I went, uh, uh. And I just kept walking because <laughs> what am I going to do? Walk all the way back around again? That was stupid. How then, dare you? Yeah. And then the rest of the time I ignored the arrows. Most people ignored the arrows. I got my one fucking package of toilet paper and that was it. Well, you know what? It, it's Nobody tried to fight me. Nobody was going to. That's why we're not going to survive as a species. Yeah. I'm the one that's going to spread it. Keep it going y- longer. Yep. Too. Yep. That's what's going to happen. People aren't going to follow social distancing guidelines. Mm-hmm. Dead meat. Oh, well. What are you going to do? I got everything I needed at the store. For now. Next week. <laughs> yeah, shortages. Bring brass knuckles. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I don't take brass knuckles. There's brass involved. Oh, yeah. Big round brasses. Big round asses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, what else is going on? That's about it. Uh, on a personal front, I am almost done with my second book. Oh, good. As if... if Anybody's a long-time listener to this podcast. I have droned on about my book writing experience, and the first one has been up for sale for a little bit. I have written the second one, typed the second one. Now I'm going through it to fix any typos I see, which is, once again, every fucking chapter. <laughs> like You would think I would catch it the first time through because I reread it after I type it. Nope. Every chapter. Still see typos. Change the language a little bit. So I'm excited about that. I like that. I'm, I'm getting through it. And you know what? Like I said before, genuinely enjoy this as a hobby. If it never goes anywhere, I'm sitting there rereading what I wrote. I'm going, this is goddamn good. I could spin a goddamn really good yarn. (laughs) I've satisfied myself, and that's all I need. (laughs) Well, do you mind if I ask you some personal questions? First of all, where? Oh, then never mind. Yeah, stop doing it. Just stop now. Uh, Where would anybody find your your book? Ah, well, if you uh, if you want to peruse my works it is on amazon it's called chains of fate book one home fall home fall is one word so if you type that in there you're gonna get it and uh yeah that's it so far that's the one and if well, you do if anybody gets it and reads it i ask this please write a review i know i sound like one of those every other internet horror in the world you know like a review like a review it actually makes a difference i'm looking for reviews i'm trying to get reviews i've got two reviews which is good well, one of them uh, is you. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> if if I were to put in Chains of Fate, book one, Homefall, but I see that it's by a, this author that I've never heard of before, what 
<laughs> oh, you want me to say my pen name? You want me to reveal my alter identity? <laughs> well, I mean, you do on the podcast say your name is Steve Files. It's true. Well, I guess my pen name is not Steve Files. Do you it want to is. keep it a secret? Do you want to keep maintain your? Well, it's kind of in? it's kind of a weird situation to be in because I there's part of me that does mm-hmm. like I want to divorce my real life from my pseudonym, mm-hmm. but uh, at the same time I just said the name of the book so if you go find it you're gonna see the <laughs> author name sitting right there so it's uh Dwayne leroy is my pen name Dwayne leroy Dwayne leroy that's right my brother and there's a reason for that but it yeah it's because i want to fool people oh well it's uh it's worth a, a download what is uh okay so here are the personal questions that you're not going to avoid answering ah <clears throat> so what was the process of getting your book on amazon uh so Amazon actually streamlines it really well. I'll hand it to them. The thing is, if anybody's thinking about this, one thing you have to keep in mind, and I found this out, you can't put it on Amazon and put it on something else. You have to do exclusive to Amazon while it's on there. And it renews itself. The cycle's like every 90 days. So you basically have a contract saying, I'm going to put this book on Amazon, and nobody else is going to carry it for at least 90 days. Mm -hmm. And then after 90 days, it renews itself. So if the day ever came where I was like, fuck Amazon, I want to put it on like iTunes or Apple Books or whatever the hell that's called, I could do that. Don't know why I would, but it's possible. Or if I wanted to pull it entirely and go with a publishing company and have them distribute it, I could do that too. After 90 days. It's a 90-day cycle. Um, but if you have your manuscript, Amazon actually has this really good program you download that converts your manuscript into the ebook format. Because mm-hmm. that's what I that's what I have it in is an ebook, and it does chapter breaks. It'll it'll generate a table of contents. Uh, you can add in different things if you want to. Like I had a page that was for my map because it's a fantasy book, so you draw a fantasy map of your fantasy world. Of course, the way things go. So I added in a page of that. I added in, and they definitely they have something where you if you really wanted to, you can use their tool to generate a book cover. But it's pretty generic. It's like a couple of shapes and some fonts that are... It looks fine, but it doesn't look like unique at all. Mm-hmm. And I had a book cover that I had commissioned, so I was able to add that in there. And ipso facto, focus, focus, Alexander, Zip, there it is. Burp. Um, so I'm not going to ask you how much money you've on this. How many... Yeah, I don't want to brag, you know. Well, how many downloads have you it, That's also hard to say because I've done a lot of free giveaways. Okay. So technically, with the free giveaways, I've had a couple hundred, but that's not that's free, so that doesn't translate. So, however you want to look at it, um, spontaneous downloads is not that many yet because it's a slow process, and I'm funding this myself with the uh, like the promotions, the advertising, all that stuff. Right. So like as I far just, as passive income goes, this isn't. I mean, it's. Oh it no, is. this is not making me a lot of money right now. I'll say it frankly. It's costing me more money than it's made me. But I knew that going into it. But if there were, for some reason, some kind of, I don't know, like surge in people seeking out your book in particular, and you had, you know, you had good numbers, can you see that being a, a good source of passive income? If, if Yeah, you, you choose how much you're going to sell it for. Uh, they give you some guidelines and some pieces of advice, but you choose how much you're going to sell for. I pegged mine at four ninety nine, I believe. And... Uh, then you can choose different programs they have. And the I guess by because I just researched on it, the by far the most popular way is the 70-30, where you get 70%, Amazon gets 30. 
I mean, basically, they're getting money just for hosting it, and you're getting seventy. It's a pretty good deal. Right. So, yeah, if you can, if you're somebody that can generate a lot of buzz and get the word out there, then you could make, like, especially passive income. Like, you got a book out there that's automatically renewed every thirty or every ninety days with no effort on your part, no money on your part. It's on there for free. Like, you don't spend money to put it on there. You don't pay Amazon. They get thirty percent of your right profits and that's what they get paid with so you need to do something of some notoriety like you're gonna have to advertising yeah oh oh yeah yeah advertising i was thinking you know possibly some sort of public stunt oh yeah i could do that too (laughs) you could become viral by like being the guy that got run over by a (laughs) semi-truck and lived you know make the news oh that's what you think i was thinking i was gonna have a banner like sticking out my butt, streaming behind me as I streaked across a quad somewhere. Yeah, there you go. You could do with, that too. With a sock on my junk because I am tasteful. Mm-hmm. Sock on your junk. Sock, sock on my junk. Yes, jock sock. <laughs> Crusty jock sock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then I'll have a banner like saying the name of the book or something like that. I just got to get in the right place with a lot of cameras, which is not anywhere right now. So... Thanks, Plague, I guess. You cost me money. <laughs> yeah. Well, like like I've said before, I've always had a dream to have written something that goes on, you know, is available for other people. But, like, all my creative projects get halfway through, not even halfway through most of the time. And it's yeah. just like, eh, I can't. I, I think that that, like, I'm too distracted. I'm just too distracted to follow through on any of any major project that i wanted to probably the most successful project i've ever done like that <clears throat> well in recent times is my plex server all right that was one of those projects that i sat down and i mapped it out i planned what i was going to do i purchased the things i needed to and <clears throat> it was a huge undertaking to do it had to digitize all my dvds and i had to you know and i i saw it through it's complete yeah something like that benefits from like you start it and then you have this half like, I don't know how you did it, but I mentioned you had, like, a pile of DVDs that you scanned and a pile mm-hmm. that you didn't. So you like, a visual reminder that this is half done. So that yeah. could have been a motivating force. Writing yeah. is a little harder, I think, because, like, I get why you don't finish it. Because, like, you might run out of ideas or you get annoyed or you just get distracted. But my piece of advice would be, if you want to write, a, whether it's a book or a short story, write an outline. Because if you know where you want to go, then it just becomes a matter of filling in the blanks. And you get the anticipation of if I can just like because you write an outline, you're going to write your big moments like I want to I want this to happen and I want my character to have this revelation and this crazy thing going through. So you like can't wait to get to those moments while you're writing (laughs) and it pulls you like it does. It sounds weird, but it like pulls you like, like, okay, I got to get through this like dialogue here because pretty soon this scene I know is going to be awesome is going to be coming up. Like it's almost like you're a reader, not a writer. It's yeah. it's a little weird. It's hard to. Just... My outline would be like there was this guy, and then there was this girl, and yada yada yada, and then the bear. <laughs> and, and now I'm tired of this. Movie. And it would be called yada yada yada. Did you just yada a novel? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Seinfeld. It's just the answer for everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if anybody's curious, in my second book, I have a quote from Seinfeld just because I can. Because I, because nobody can tell me no. <laughs> do you have an Arrested Development quote? I do. Yes. Yeah, you do. No, I take it back. In the second book, I have an Arrested Development quote. In the third book, because I've started writing the third book, I have a Seinfeld quote. In the first book, I have a Simpsons quote. Well, there. 
So for the fourth book, I don't know what to do. I am actually lost. What am I going to do? Friends. Yeah, I could do friends. Well, friends. Maybe community. I'm trying to think. Oh, that's right. Community is your... Up there. Oh, yeah. Up there. Still, I couldn't get into it, man. Uh, well, you tried. That's the important thing. I got through no, the first season. No accounting for taste, I guess. I just... <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, no criticism, but I'm surprised that you were a fan of Scrubs, but wasn't a fan of Community. Yeah, they I are just, absolutely cut from the same cloth yeah i just couldn't i don't know i don't know what it was i don't know if just it's the I couldn't. binge i bet you anything it's the binge thing i would uh, yeah. i would blame money on that which very we've well could about. be we've talked about that all the time so today we are talking about accounting yes strap in kitties insert cricket sounds <laughs> no this is kind of nuts it it is and it's something that i had no idea that hollywood accounting was as bad as it is I, there's one thing I wanted to say uh, that I found. Like, I'm sure you've come across it and you're going to get into it, but I just want to say this one anecdote to whet the appetite, which is the actor who played Darth Vader <laughs> still has not received residuals from Return of the Jedi, and there's a reason for that. Well, it's it's quite simple, and we can talk about it right now. Return of the Jedi, one of the biggest blockbusters, one of the it could be one of the biggest franchises ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Return of the Jedi still has not turned a profit. Yes. <laughs> That's why the guy has not received residuals because technically there's no residuals to get because on paper, no profit for Return of the Jedi. So let me just real quick talk about what Hollywood accounting is. Yeah. Hollywood accounting is normal accounting, what you would think it is, or, or balancing of books for uh, the entertainment industry, television, music movies and once upon a time back during the i'm making air quotes because we're going to talk about this one day we'll have a whole podcast on the golden age of hollywood Mm. but the golden age of hollywood actors were basically salaried and they worked they worked for a studio and they got like a monthly amount and they got all this notoriety and they could go out on the town they would never have to pay for a meal they had parties and big houses and hobnobbed with like other celebrities. So like there was a lot more than just cold, hard cash that went into being a, a starlet. Yeah. A movie star of the golden age. There was a lot that went into it, a lot of perks. So these actors and actresses would take these deals with these studios. Um, and that's escaping me now. I just, I just heard it the other day. There was an actress who broke the mold. Is yeah. It- I think, no, I'm just, I'm thinking back as, I remember you talking about it in one of the podcasts before. Like she I can't remember. It's not basically Hedy saying it was like slave labor and all kinds of crap. Yeah, but it it's I'm trying to think it's not Hedy Lamar, but it's one of the one of the actresses of that era. Yeah. Decided to forego her monthly check. I don't know if her contract was up or if she was allowed to move on or whatever. And she said that she would do a film, but instead of taking her normal salary, she wanted uh, a percentage of the profits. Mm-hmm. And the studio at the time did not know what to do. Basically, <laughs> um, Jimmy Stewart did the same thing. So I really wish I could remember that actress's name, but it, whatever. You get the point. These actors and actresses of that age started to say, you know, I don't want my annual salary from you. I don't know. I don't want my monthly salary. I want a percentage of the profits. And like I said, the studios were not built to understand that. They didn't 
they didn't understand those practices yet. So they were like, sure, this, this movie's not going to make that much money. But then all of a sudden, movies would hit, and they would be huge, and they'd be big profits. And then all of a sudden, these people would start making some serious money, way more money than mm-hmm. they were making before, because they were getting the, the profits, or a percentage of the profits. All about the math, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Hollywood had to catch up. And they certainly didn't invent the notion of cooking the books. They didn't invent, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> they didn't invent shady bookkeeping, but they certainly streamlined it. And it worked really, really well in their environment. So what Hollywood was doing was they were creating uh, a shell corporation, essentially, for every movie. So every movie that got made would have its own right. uh, company. And so then they would farm out um, like the craft services, the screenwriting, the uh, basically everything that went into making a movie would have its own line item that they'd have to pay themselves back before anybody made any profit. Right. So they essentially started overcharging for these, therefore guaranteeing there was no profit. <laughs> and so you fast forward to like the eighties where they were really, they were humming. They were, were firing on all cylinders and, the, and they were creating movies and charging back charging everything to themselves and there were zero profit mm-hmm. so i guess that really started to screw with screenwriters that started to screw with actors and actresses that just weren't savvy enough they didn't understand how the whole practice worked and so you had people that were like oh you're gonna give me 15 percent of the profits that sounds like an awesome deal and they yeah. could do that they they could do that they could yep they could absolutely throw out these numbers, uh, you know, shares of profits, because they basically knew there's not going to be any profits. They, nobody's going to profit off this movie. We're going to ensure mm-hmm. that, you know, and like, I guess the U.S. government's been selling $150 hammers and $20,000 toilet seats to itself for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, right. but, but Hollywood has really done a good job of kind of passing it off under everybody's noses and it's such a (laughs) like an industry secret you can't find a lot of information online about it you can you can absolutely find information there's to be honest there's a pretty good wikipedia page that explains you know hollywood accounting it's not like a true secret but if you want to be anybody in hollywood i mean some people go sit on the casting couch (laughs) And some people, and some people, just there's shut, one way. Yeah. And some people just shut their fucking mouth and they take it. Now, of course, not on the casting couch. You do not shut your mouth on the casting couch. <laughs> Step number no. one is keep that mouth open. Yeah. Uh, there have been actors and actresses in the recent past that have really broken the mold again and demanded upfront money. You know, there's, there's a lot of things and actors and actresses have been making huge sums of money for, for a long time, um, they're not always the ones that get screwed. Like I said, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into filmmaking. Yeah. From the staff, camera people, uh, lighting people, um, craft services, all of the catering and uh, rental of the trailers, rental the of the boy. lot. Don't forget the best, the best boy. The Come gaffer. On. Like there's a lot the of these people. Rip. And so a budget, the budget might be X. And they can say, well, that's that's great. We're going to borrow Y against ourselves to pay ourselves 
and all this money, you know, maybe maybe the budget is 200 million, but it's going to cost us 400 million. We set the budget at 200 million, but then we borrow against ourselves and the, the actual cost is 400 million. I guess there are some really good examples of movies that um, like Harry Potter, the Harry yeah, Potter so, movies, Lord of the Rings it. movies. Um, like technically, I've turned no. I found, well, before you keep going with it, that okay. right in the middle, because I, I was doing a little bit, and I found this Atlantic article that laid it out and it said something. There's a little paragraph I wanted to read because I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, go for it. That, uh, it's like, confused? Imagine you're running a lemonade stand with your buddy Steve. Eh, their word, but. Dude, your buddy, Dwayne Leroy. Dwayne Leroy, yes. Said, your mom says you have to share half your profits with your sister, but you don't want to. So you pretend your buddy Steve is actually a corporation. Call him Steve Inc. And charging you for rent for the stand, the spoon, etc. You could just say, dang, mom, I don't have any profits. I had to pay it all to Steve Inc. When you say, when she tells you to come home, but the money isn't gone. It's as good as yours. It's just in your best friend's pocket. Yeah. So that was like, I thought that was a pretty good, like succinct that analogy. Is, that, that is the perfect analogy for Hollywood accounting is, yeah. you know, we don't have any profits. We didn't make any money on this movie. Uh, because over here with this guy, yeah. this guy just happens to be us and everything but name, <laughs> but whatever, <laughs> we right. don't have. There are some really terrible. Paramount didn't make any movie off, money off of this. Fucking three guys in a shack. Incorporated made money off of this. Go fuck them for it, but you don't have a contract with them, do you? So screw you. Yeah, that's Three guys in the shred. <laughs> yeah. Incorporated. Don't forget that. LLC. LLC. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, like there are some, even beyond that, there are some pretty shady accounting deals that were going on. From your neck of the woods, I guess the Pontiac, um, in Pontiac, Michigan, they closed down a um, uh, factory, a vehicle manufacturer. And then some guys from Hollywood uh, wanted to come in and take advantage of some tax breaks because mm-hmm. that's a, that's a huge practice as well. Is so there are different ways to lure filmmaking in your area, and that's a big boost for tourism. It's a big boost for jobs. It's a big boost for a lot of things. So let's just say New uh, you know New Orleans is offering. Well, let's just stay stick with Pontiac, Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Why because not? this really happened. Well, it, it really happened. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just. And this is it's it's a tragedy. I'm I'm just waiting for the uh, punchline to be just how horrible it is because I know because I grew up there. So yes. <laughs> well, no. I mean, they got the wool pulled over their eyes by big Hollywood execs. It would have made a difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the governor of Michigan at the time mm. said, "I'm mad because all these jobs are lost because we had to close the plant. So right. I'm going to create these tax breaks. You know, these two there's a filmmaker from the area that came back and said, listen, if you make these tax breaks, I'll make sure that my friends from Hollywood come in here. We'll take the old uh, car manufacturer plant and we're going to turn it into a studio and make films there. It's going to create 3,600 jobs. It's going to bring in all kinds of money into the economy. You'll be a hero. So this governor pulled out all stops to make sure that this happened. Mm -hmm. And they had to, they had to, bankroll it they had they basically had to do all the heavy lifting and spend the money on it and these hollywood types would come in and make films there well they ended up making it out of the 3600 jobs that they promised they only had 12 jobs created (laughs) uh they only filmed like two films there um and all the money that went into bringing this place up to snuff was like 20 30 million dollars or something like that was bankrolled by uh 
the the state who was so desperate to have him there uh, took out loans on the state retirement <laughs> for firefighters, police officers, teachers, and stuff like that, and yeah. basically lost all that money. And it was it was more than twenty or thirty million in the long run. It was hundreds of millions. How but, uh, how long ago was this? Does it say? I don't know. I it was um, it was kind of like a little nugget that I had caught while I was doing a little bit of research for this. And um, if you look up, give me just a second. If you look up on YouTube, because I just I remember. I mean, I grew up in Pontiac, so I remember the plant closing. And now the Silver Dome is gone. You know, I just as my years went by, I just watched it all fall apart. And I don't ever remember a studio coming in Hollywood, guys. But I, I, I believe everything you're saying. I just if you if you look up. Uh... Kaiser Report, Hollywood Accounting on YouTube, K-E-I-S-E-R, Kaiser Report, Hollywood Accounting. If you watch that video, they talk about it. Um, Motown Motion Picture Studio. I think that might be. Hmm. Oh, it's uh, Broken Unibrow Films. <laughs> All right. No, that's not it. That's somebody else. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, just a, some schmuck on the internet. Some schmuck. Yeah, it's Motown, Motown Motion Picture Studio. It was founded in 2011. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, so yeah, basically the moral of the story is Hollywood will fuck you if they get a chance. Yeah, it, it was. It's Ari Emanuel. I guess it's the brother of the Chicago mayor. Oh yeah, the guy who um, um, Entourage is based on him, or something. The part from Entourage is based on him. Yeah, Jeremy Piven's so, part. Yeah, so it was basically 2010, and it opened in 2011. Hmm. And and um, yeah, I was already moved away by that point, so. Probably what I wasn't up on it. Can, I, geez, I, can you imagine all the people in Pontiac going, oh my God, there's going to be a film studio here. Yeah. This is going to be like a little Hollywood. It's going to be great. We're going to have, we're going to be famous and people are going to come in. And Ah, oh, geez. <laughs> here we go. I'm just going to read this quick thing for you. Uh, Michigan officials initially considered the studio to be a significant economic engine since it was intended to establish the state as a legitimate contender in, an, in the 12 month a year film business. With Pontiac having a high unemployment rate and financial emergency, the studio was seen as a way to diversify the economy of the city away from General Motors, then given a bailout. The company pursued and got various government incentives. The city was pushed over the objection of the financial manager to waive property taxes and issued municipal bonds on behalf of the country. The bonds were backed by the state retirement system. Oh, God. The studio got assistance from the federal tax credit program with help from Edward B. Montgomery, the White House assistant for automobile community. So anyway... Uh, it basically, they filmed, uh, the first big picture filmed at the studio was Disney's Oz, the Great and Powerful. Okay, see, that makes sense, because I met a guy, like, I came home, ran to a guy I knew when I was a kid in elementary school, and he had this, like, store, he's selling, like, system, whatever that crap is, and there was this guy there that was, that knew him, and me and this guy started talking, he said he was an extra in that movie. And I remember at the time thinking, I didn't know that they filmed around here or anything like that, but apparently it's true. Yeah. So I apparently am superficially acquainted with a guy that's an extra in Oz and Great and Powerful. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, anyway, it was one of, it was a victim of Hollywood accounting. That that whole, that whole thing. See, and the upshot of this whole thing means, like if you ever, I guess... What I take away is like every time you think, how can all these movies be made that are just 
going to be bombs. Don't they know it? Don't they care? Isn't there somebody in charge of being like, man, we, we've seen this before. This movie is not going to make its money back or it's not going to be successful at all. And this makes sense because now they're like, who cares? Right. They're they're just making money through tax incentives. and Right, yeah. I Between mean, tax write-offs and screwing over everybody else, they're not going to really lose any money. Right. The people that lose the money are the people that are indirectly involved with the production of it. Probably that place had caterers, yeah. you know, that probably went without pay, you know. They probably had electricians that worked on some things there that just didn't get paid. You know, like that's the that's those are the real people who got screwed from mm-hmm. Hollywood. So like the only studios that really have to worry about an overwhelming bomb are like small little independent outfits that are just you know, they're depending on actually putting out a good product to have well, a reputation I, and all that stuff. There is a, a pretty good model for low-budget movies to be made. Um, I'm struggling to think of the director that makes them all. There's a director that just churns out low-budget movies, and he only needs, like, one or two to hit a <laughs> year. I can think so, of one. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, how, it's like a German guy. Uwe Boll. He, he's made his career on making video game movies, and they're all just god-awful. Yeah. But he just, for whatever reason, just gets again and again and again, <laughs> makes these video game movies that are just terrible. Yeah. Well, it's Jason Bloom. Uh-huh. Um, he's, he was a producer of low-budget films, and his model is he only needs uh, a couple to hit in a year, and he makes his money. It's because that's it. That's how he gets away with it. It's the spam telemarketing philosophy of money making. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Nicholas Cage philosophy of money making. <laughs> wow, I uh, I'm having some technical difficulties here. You're not moving on screen. No. Nope. You can hear me, right? I can hear you. Just well, nobody needs to see me, so it's fine. I just hope it's fine. Can we time out just one second? <laughs> Priorities. Yes, priorities. <laughs> All right, so uh, Hollywood accounting. You know what? Hold on one second. You've inspired me. <laughs> this break has been brought to you by beer. Oh, you still can't see me. No, I can't see. It's just a frozen picture of you now. I got my big, I got a two liter Dr. Pepper today, so. Oh, there you I, go. I wouldn't grab that. Uh,. Won't get me drunk, but it'll make me happy, so good enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to edit this part of the podcast, though. <laughs> ah, why would you? Pure gold. This is gold. It's gold, Jerry. <laughs> it's all pipes. <clears throat> so, did you have something further to elucidate us with? Well, I think <clears throat> we we talked earlier about this, and we hashed a lot of stuff out and how it might tie into certain things. Um, one of the things that really boggles my mind when I think about Hollywood accounting is how one movie can be considered a flop uh, when it has still made money. Right. So you look at the budget for, you know, let's just say there's a movie, the budget's 75 million and then it, it makes, uh, you know, 200 million or, uh, well, I guess, I guess one of the really good examples is my big fat Greek wedding. Do you remember that mm. movie? Right. Its budget was six million, and it ended up grossing almost three hundred million, like two hundred seventy-five million dollars. It still has not turned a profit. Yeah, and that is all because of Hollywood accounting. 
Now, any of these people that are involved in the movie that were relying on, you know, the reason why they can get the budget so low is they get people who can sign on to a project like that based on a percentage of the profits. And then they get to say, well, no, no profits. Sorry. I, so any savvy movie star these days will not do residuals. They'll sign on for a flat. It's like full circle. Like they'll go back to a flat fee. Like if you're you know, Tom Cruise, you're saying, I want $100 million to do this. Well, there's there's uh, there are contract terms um, and there's certain things that they can do um, and there. I, I can't remember all the terms like floor and ceiling and stuff like that. Like there's a minimum amount of money they can take and there's a maximum amount of money that they can take. But it's on the front end. It's before the movie actually makes it to the theater. And I one of the most recent like real big profiteers of this was Sandra Bullock in the movie Gravity. Apparently, she again flipped the script and broke the mold on the contract, and she ended up making like seventy million dollars from that movie. Holy crap! Yeah, I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even know what that grossed. Um, let me check. See, here's I'm gonna give some piece of advice to all these Hollywood or aspiring actors or anybody that's gonna be in this. I it just came to me. Here's what you do: don't take royalties, and if you think asking for a flat fee is not gonna work out license your likeness like if you're going to be in one of these big tentpole big budget sci-fi action movies like a marvel movie or star wars or something like that you know say you're chris evans license your face so that every toy that's sold that's based on your likeness you get a percentage of it <laughs> it's all in the merchandising yeah but then the movie the movie industry would like star lord would be black <laughs> <laughs> the toy for for star lord would be like some black guy. Proportions. Uh, I have my arms are, you know, this far from my shoulder, my fingertips, my shoulders are this proportion <laughs> apart. My my eyes are spaced this far apart. That means any toy that's got these same dimensions, plus or minus five percent. <laughs> I don't know. Seriously, find a savvy lawyer. You can do it. It'll work. All right. Nineteen of the highest paid movie roles of all time, including a hundred million dollars for a single film. This is the Business Insider. Mm. It's rare for actors to make to rake in huge salaries today, at least compared to the days when audiences were drawn to a movie primarily based on its leading star. Years ago, if a certain actor's name was were attached to a movie, it was almost guaranteed a success. Stars like Will Smith, Tom Cruise, and Jim Carrey were paid big bucks in the 1990s because they attracted a crowd. So Jim Carrey was paid 20 million for The Cable Guy. I, I was just we, gonna say. Yeah, we just talked about that recently because it was expected that he could deliver a 20 million dollar opening weekend at done. least. Yeah. After Dumb and Dumber, after Ace Ventura, Cable Guys, like, gotta be a slam dunk, right? Woo. Yeah. <clears throat> so, these are 19 of the highest paid actors or and actresses for their parts in movies. Emma Stone in La La Land, she got paid $26 million for that movie. Hmm. And, okay, so this, this is a combination of star power and their contract. Like, their yeah. ability to negotiate a contract. Because, I'll be perfectly honest with you. There, there is no way in a million years a studio is going to pay an actor or an actress $26 million to be in a movie unless they are going to deliver that. Like, Yeah, they're not going to slap down $26 million and say, come to our movie. There's no way. Yeah, no. Right. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, Six Underground. Okay, it's, that's a Netflix movie. It's okay. That's an okay movie. But that's not even in box office. $27 million. So that... That was almost entirely a contract negotiation there because uh, it, it wasn't in theaters. 
it was straight to Netflix. Yeah. Um, twenty nine million to Arnold Schwarzenegger for Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines. Yeah, that and, was based. Yeah. And you know that was a studio that wanted to make a Terminator Three movie, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, "If you want me, this is my price: thirty million for Jim Carrey and Yes Man." Uh, the Bright sequel. Uh, Will Smith. Did you ever see Bright on Netflix? Yeah. yeah. Was it any? Was it any good? That, it's. If, if you end up watching it, you're you're not gonna like regret it as far as like a waste amount of time. But there's better ways to spend your time. I'll say that it was fine. It was serviceable. It was not like anything you would remember long after you saw it. There is a sequel in the works, and Will Smith is gonna get 35 million for being in it. Yeah, I believe it. Wow. <clears throat> I wonder if those times are coming to an end. Cause like you said, your the article you're reading said once upon a time you could draw based on this the star's name alone i wonder if those days are coming to an end seriously well i mean just there's a huge pool of actors and actresses that are going to bring in audience i mean cameron diaz right here for bad teacher i never saw that movie nah okay so this is a little explanation she received 42 million cameron diaz was paid a mere one million dollars to get bad teacher produced but received a portion of box office earnings, which secured her over $40 million for the movie. It's known as one of the most legendary deals in Hollywood history. Wow. Leonardo so, DiCaprio in Inception, $50 million. So the fact that these guys are getting this much money from whatever means that this Hollywood accounting thing, somebody dropped the ball. Like somewhere or, in the studio, somebody's like, fuck, we forgot to set up the corporation right or some shit like that. Or they have a failsafe of, we, we need this person in this movie, and we know we're going to get that money back. Yeah. Jack Nicholson received $50 million for his role in Batman. Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean, $55 million. Forrest Gump. Now, there's an interesting story because the Forrest, the guy that wrote Forrest Gump, they gave him like $350,000 plus a percentage of the profits, and that's another movie that hasn't made any profits. So this yep. guy that wrote Forrest Gump and, and gave it away, basically gave it away to the studio because that yep. money has made a lot of money. Tom Hanks made $60 million off of <laughs> God, you ever want to find the angriest person on the planet? Like a universally beloved movie, Forrest Gump, that made all kinds, won awards, made all kinds of, you know, technical profits, mm -hmm. and the guy got paid jack shit. Like, there's something wrong with that. Never, <laughs> lesson, never walk in blind. Always have an agent. That's, I guess, a lesson for... You want to know something that's kind of a crime here and why your Netflix bill is so high? Adam Sandler. Netflix gave Adam Sandler a deal for $250 million for four movies. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, Netflix's, their entire business model mystifies me. Because I, I, I still remember when Netflix would come out with original programming, it was worth watching. You like look for, like, oh, this is an original Netflix thing. This is going to be good. Now it's it's every day. You, you turn Netflix on, they put something. There's no way to keep up with it. So... How are they paying for all this? How does this like you? do they turn that big a profit with just their subscriptions that they can pay for all these besides licensing the other stuff that they don't make themselves? Just they pay for all these crap movies because I would say seven out of ten original Netflix things now are just mediocre at best. Yeah. So here's the gravity. Here's Sandra Bullock in Gravity. Her deal was twenty million up front. And it also included 15%, not of profits, 15% of box office revenue. Okay, that's, there you go. That's, that's key. Yeah, and that there's a name for that. I don't know the I don't know the name off the top of my head, but there's a name for that deal. 
Smart. Yep, real smart. That's the name. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes, she she's either a genius or she had somebody that was like an agent that knew what they were doing. It's like no, 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 profit, forget that. That's a loser's game. Box office pull. So maybe that is. I wonder if that's like the next revolution in Hollywood accounting is they're gonna have to figure a way to. Ah, here we go. We're now, according to some people, in the transition of bypassing movie theaters entirely. So with no box office, the only gauge is profit at this point. Yeah. So this They'll is a way for studios to fuck over these stars that are learning new tricks. So Sandra so- Bullock. They're going to give her the old shaft. <laughs> you thought you got one over at us, bitch. Well, ha uh, Keanu Reeves, for the Matrix trilogy, he made $250 million. Yeah, That's, they gave most of that away. Yeah, I know. Guy's a saint. But the number one, and this is, this, I, I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. Will Smith as Agent J in Men in Black 3, not all three movies, just Men in Black 3, his contract to have him play as part in his movie 100 million saying i didn't even see part three because i wasn't interested in it yeah and he got 100 million just to be in it that means the budget for that movie just to pay him would be the envy of most other movies budgets <laughs> yep that's nuts well but everybody walks into that thing with their eyes wide open so you know what more power to him i guess if they got the money to spend on it and they are willing to do it who's gonna say no yeah there's a really good um video Speaking of having to have an agent, um, there's a screenwriter that does a YouTube video about uh, what you need in a contract when you're selling your screen uh, play to a studio. And they essentially, um, <clears throat> they uh, the, the guy says the one thing you absolutely need is an agent. You should not be the one talking. You should not be the one negotiating your own money mm-hmm. <clears throat> because they absolutely will absolutely uh, take advantage of you. But there's a there's a percentage not guaranteed to screenwriters, but expected, and it's two percent. But that two percent drops way down if the budget of the film. So it's two percent of the budget of the film. So if a screenwriter has written uh, a screenplay and somebody wants to make it, and the budget's ten million, they're going to get two percent of that. Right. Well, that's the lowest, like two and a half percent, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars is what you should expect from a ten million budget film right if the but if the film um the film's budget's 100 million you shouldn't expect you know two and a half million that's just not going to happen it it, there's a ceiling i guess and that's where i got the terms floor and ceiling and the floor is like two hundred fifty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars is the floor of what you should be doing as a screenwriter in hollywood and i guess the ceiling is like six hundred and fifty thousand dollars or or just slightly above that Mm. and so you think about these people that are writing these unbelievable movies you know these Man. huge blockbusters and they're they're not making gigantic i mean that's huge money to me i mean if i sold one screenplay but oh yeah like guys like you and me right now two hundred fifty thousand dollars for writing a screenplay a big static yeah but then you but start if, to think there's no movie without you like all that nothing starts until you have your thing that's right and one of the things that a lot of people get negotiated out the when the price drives up. Um, one of the things that, that gets negotiated out is uh, rewrites. Oh, yeah. a, a lot of these guys that are writing screenplays, they put it in their contract that they want the first rewrite and uh, or at least visibility on the first screenwrite. And um, the more you jack your price up, the less likely it is you're going to get any rewrite 
So mm. I don't know how much that would be important to anybody. A lot of what goes into these movies and is getting your name on the movie, like as a credit. Right. That's in to some degree, that's just as good as cash to some of these people. Because, you know, if you get credited on this film and it's, it's a big movie, your price just goes up or your ability to work gets extended. But on the other hand, if you're somebody that is really artistic, like, like feels that like they're an artist, then you're going to want to have everything to do with like, so like you, like you said, you don't want to jack your price up because you want to be a part of the rewrite. You might want to lower your price way down and just have your deal be, I want to be the screenwriter and the rewrites and the, any script doctoring, I want to be involved start to finish so you don't compromise my vision. Right. Like, I wonder how much that ever happens or if it's just something like, yeah, fuck it, whatever, pay me what you want. Because <laughs> that, I guarantee you, there's people out there that are like, I know, like, I just know in my heart that what I wrote is going to be this amazing for the ages movie as long as these Hollywood bean counters don't get their fucking fingers on it. So that's what they put in their contract. That's what they negotiate for. Wouldn't be me, though. Man, you cut me that check and I'd be <laughs> like, right. yes, sir. Yeah, I'm out of I'll here. Write something else some other time. It's all good. Yep. And then if you write something really good and you get your name on the movie, guess what? <laughs> I'll do the next one. Maybe you write something you think is pretty good and then somebody rewrites it, but your name's on there anyways. Yep. And the rewrites are actually what makes it be like, yeah, totally. I, I, I'm the screenwriter on this one. <laughs> yep. That was me. But just think about all these people that are writing these movies that are the filmmakers themselves, like Quentin Tarantino um, and the the brothers that did the Marvel or uh, Infinity War and like you know that they're in like a yeah. writers writers yeah. room. The uh, Russo taking, brothers who the also Russo did brothers. Community, which you know here we go again. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I think that that's that's pretty commonplace as well. Like the actual s- screenwriters are the filmmakers. George Lucas. Yep. Yeah, that's got to be exhausting because if you're the director and the writer, holy crap, those are the guys that. I've got to be like the um, the tyrants, right? Because you have a vision at that point, man. Start to finish, you have you know exactly what's got to happen and what the scene looks like and how the people saying it are gonna have to look and act and sound. So when they deviate, you're gonna put a fucking shotgun in somebody's mouth. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Hollywood accounting. So okay, when I was telling you before we started, but when you told me about this topic i was pretty intrigued because the way you the way you're talking you're saying something like how you can never have a flop hollywood take care of takes care of itself and make sure you know through all these shady means that the money moves around and blah 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 mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know if that picked up or not but i just belched mightily um it made me think of where my mind went was i was more sure that i should have been but I, at least i had the question of is there kind of a Hollywood circle jerk going on between producers and film critics? Like you, like you talked about the crazy accounting keeps them protected from flops. And I'm wondering, like, is there a, a producer critic circle that is like a feedback loop that helps get things out? Like, so I, I did research and I'll be, you know, I'll be honest. What I came across was basically the people that thought, yes, are essentially conspiracy theory nuts that are living in the basement with tinfoil hats on their heads. Oh, wow. Because there's people out there that will say all day long, Disney pays critics to do positive reviews, which is why there's the only reason why Marvel does so much better than DC as far as their movies go. Um, It's 
and there was I, I found this article is actually really it was it was good as far as it went it was like masterful where uh what was the one that just came out a year or two ago wrinkle in time mm-hmm. with like oprah and all those people and it bombed and the critics didn't even like it and there was somebody that was saying yes that is disney being savvy by making sure it's not obvious that they're going to influence critics and pay critics to up the movie so they, they this was a sacrifice so they had to make a absolute bomb of a movie it was twofold it was it was a it was a virtue signal piece because it was like women centric and minority centric yeah. so it was like a, a like a whatever you would call it, their version of a prestige movie you know it's not going to make a lot of money but it's going to show that we're a good company quote unquote that was this guy's argument and the other one is it plus it throws people off the trail of the shady backhanded you know we're going to pat you on the back, critics, if you pat us on the back. So they were probably paying the critics to say bad things about Yes, that, <laughs> that's what I came across. I'm like, this is actually really awesome. This is Conspiracy Theory 101. Any, any evidence against your conspiracy is evidence for more conspiracy. It's great. <laughs> but I did find something, if you will indulge me, my yeah, thought process. Because this is what I was first thinking. And strapping kitties, because here we go. Last Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Not going to get into it, but it was just, it boggled my mind how, and this is notorious at this point, where Rotten Tomatoes, the critic reviews was 90-something percent. Users is 43, I think, at this point. And Rotten Tomatoes itself has come out. I mean, there was everything. It was going hot and heavy for a while about, you know, was there bots? Was there a campaign? Why were the user reviews so low? And Rotten Tomatoes themselves came out and said, no, there's no bots. You know, we can, we're pretty sure it is what it is. It's just what it looks like. People just didn't like this movie. So there's a divorce between professional critics and users. And I started thinking when Black Panther came out, a couple of people got really like tarred and feathered on social media, professional reviewers, because they cost Black Panther's 100% positive review score. Because like one or two people came out and said, meh, it was okay. And that was about it. it cost them a 100% review score and people like went nuts about it. Or uh, there's this one guy, I forget his name. He's a professional reviewer. His name is Armand White, who's actually a black guy. So ironically enough, mm-hmm. who did not like the movie Get Out. Did you ever, you know, Get Out is that yeah. horror movie, Jordan yep. Peele. Yep. Uh, he, he thought it was like, derivative and he said i can see what they're trying to do but he he wrote this review that was actually pretty erudite is pretty informed really gets down to the nitty-gritty and it takes it apart and was an honest review very intelligent very good saying eh, wasn't that great and he got killed on social media how could you say this this is insanity what's wrong with you because everybody loved this movie right how can that many people be wrong Right. Well, as far as professional critics. So it's stuff like this that was in my head. Like, there's got to be an echo chamber that critics live in. And I did come across this guy wrote an essay saying, like, there's definitely some kind of echo chamber. What do you say here? Uh, He was writing about aggregates, review aggregates. He says, why does this matter? In the Internet age, holy shit, did you explode? (laughs) Wow. Sorry. I tried to. I tried to turn my. That actually scared me. I was like, "Oh God." <laughs> okay, go. Uh, okay, so why does it matter with the aggregates like Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic? In the internet age, reviews are everything, but professional critics are a dying breed. 
This is this live and die by the stars. <clears throat> the effect of review aggregators on companies and products has been well recorded, but perhaps more significant is the impact on the reviewers themselves. I find myself cautious to announce a strong opinion before I have checked my own echo chambers, usually my personal Twitter feed in the comments section of different film reviews places. If I find myself in contradiction to the consensus on these platforms, such as with my liking of superhero flick Venom or my dislike of the indie horror Hereditary, my enthusiasm to express my own view is dampened. So this guy's coming out and saying there is an echo chamber. So this is what my thought was when I was getting into this was, once again, I'm going to try to get past it, but The Last Jedi was so over the top. How the fuck does this happen where 90-something percent of reviewers are loving this and millions upon millions upon millions of everybody else doesn't? I'm like, there's got to be a trend, a pull. There's got to be a force involved, whether the Hollywood studios are doing something. And I was wrong. I'll admit it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I, I came up with nothing. I did find something that talked about there's press junkets. Like studios will try to pad it out. There's there's definitely some influence peddling things going around. Um, like reviewers will speak in blurbs when they do reviews now because they know that's what studios like to put on DVD covers, Blu-ray DVD covers, covers uh, movie posters, all that crap. Yeah. So they'll actually start saying things that are blurb worthy. Um, they, they reviewers take pre-vacations on the studio's dimes, trips to Hawaii. They they call it the press junket and Yes, that happens, but reviewers will still give scathing reviews to studios that still hooked them up. So, long and short of it, I'm big enough, man, to admit what I was wrong. <laughs> and I was wrong. There's really no dog wagging the tail thing going on here with professional reviewers. But I, I am convinced there's a zeitgeist. Like, a, the zeitgeist is the spirit of the times. There's, like, a world we live in. Like that guy said, there's an echo chamber, and you feel like you don't want to buck your tribe. Well, do you want to be the the guy that talks bad about the first black superhero like exactly. blockbuster film? Yeah. And I say that because I know about Blade. I know, you know, I'm just saying that if you are, if it's true, you're talking about a sign of the times. You have to know the world you're living in right now. You have to know that like there is a movie coming out called Black Panther that is basically a movie celebrating uh you know a black character who can compete with all these other white superheroes and all these big blockbusters like do you want to be the guy that says something bad about that in this time in this day and age like in one of the um 1983 if you were writing a review (laughs) a scathing review about a black superhero nobody bat an eye but in you know 2017 is that when that came out yeah, yeah. but but nowadays, do you really want to be the one who criticizes a movie about you know struggles, women struggles? Uh, you know that that's basically your. It's you funny. Got, you, you got a mic drop and walk the fuck out because yeah, you're just gonna get killed. No, it's funny. You you the, the word usage you picked is actually kind of it's actually really cool. Uh, so one of the articles I was reading about the Black Panther thing was from Essence. So a black reviewer was, um, the name of the article was, were white reviewers grading Black Panther on a curve? And he talked about how he went to a screening with a bunch of other reviewers, professional reviewers, and he was sitting behind a couple of white guys who didn't realize he was there or something. 
And so he's like, I overheard the conversation, and one of the guys was like, well, I'm getting kind of sick of the hype. The other guy's like, yeah, the hype is kind of crazy. It's just all over the place, and I can't imagine it's going to live up to it. And the first guy's like, yeah, but I'm not going to be that guy. Like The other guy's <laughs> like, he said, that's what he said. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. And the other guy's like, yeah, there's no way. As in, I'm not going to be that guy that says that the black, you're not just black hero, because like I said, Blade was first, but African, you know, centric one. Like, I'm not going to be the guy that steps out and says it's run of the mill, middle of the pack type of movie. Right. Which, you know, it is what it is. If it means, like I always said the same thing. If it, if you're a, the guy sitting home and watching it and it means something to you deeply, I'm not going to try to take that away from you. But the fact that all these reviewers will universally love, and you can almost guess which ones they're going to love. Like before Captain Marvel came out, I would have laid down money that the reviews were going to be glowing. And they were because it checked the right boxes. Black Panther, glowing, check the right boxes. Wonder Woman, glowing, check the right boxes. Right. Guarantee you that because uh, Black Widow was supposed to have been out before now, would have been over the top great because that's the world we live in now. Nobody's going to buck that trend. Nobody's going to give an honest review saying, regardless of the demographics of the people in this movie, it just didn't, you know, it didn't break the mold. It just it kept things safe and it hit the same notes and the same tropes. Nobody's going to say that. They're going to be, oh, like The Last Jedi. Yeah. The Last Jedi was praised for taking all the plot threads from The Force Awakens. When it when it took all those plot threads, raised parents, who's Snoke, what's the lightsaber's significance, and said, fuck it, who cares? All those critics said, hell yeah, that's the way to go. When The Last Skywalker came out, or The Rise of Skywalker came out, yeah. and did the same thing to The Last Jedi, took all those... Brian Johnson's, oh, no, nothing nothing meant anything. Snoke's nobody. Ray's parents are nobody. And said, okay, Snoke has an origin. Ray's parents were somebody. The reviewers hated that. What's the difference? The Rise of Skywalker didn't check all the same boxes that The Last Jedi did. There's a zeitgeist. There's a there's a spirit of the times. But that's and, a divergence, and I'm getting back into the whole bitch Well, no, I, no, I no. To, just to follow up with that, I mean, how many people have a reviewer? Yeah, like many, a favorite like, reviewer. Well, okay, so if we were to put any weight to movie review, if we were going to legitimize that business and say, yeah, I think that other people's opinions really are going to determine what I like and what I don't like, if that's the case, I mean, back in the day, there was Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. And Siskel and Ebert, you could usually tell if you were going to like a movie or, you know, based on one of their opinions of the two thumbs up, you know, one thumb up, one thumb down kind of thing. But, like... At this stage in the game, with reviewers and Rotten Tomatoes and the the sheer amount, it makes sense that if you were going to put any weight into critics' opinions, you would find one that corresponds with your tastes, and you would follow that person. And that just it's it's a cloud now. It's a void. It's just this huge group of people all talking bullshit. And like honestly, you know, your friends are probably the best people to uses a sounding board for what you yeah. like and what you don't like, but you also can't take their opinion a hundred percent. So, I mean, you just got to try different things. And I wish, I, I really wish that I had a personal critic that I could <laughs> rely on that would, I could, I could realistically listen to their opinion and say, I'm going to like that, or I'm not going to like that. But until I find that one person, I can't trust any of those people. I mean, the, all these people going on Rotten Tomatoes talking about the last Jedi sucking, or being good, or what, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care. I'm going to mm -hmm. like what I like, and I'm going to see The Last Jedi, 
you know, I'm going to see those movies and all it's going to do is give me an opinion of them, not the movie. All <laughs> right. I'm not going to remember from one person to the next because uh, you got this one critic from the New York Times that says this, and then you got one, somebody from the LA Times that says that. Like, unless I'm following that person, unless I'm, and I suppose there are, like there are Twitter followers and, you know, there are these these people who are like true influencers. Uh, you know, there, there are people that you can follow and, oh, this, this guy likes this movie. I guess I will like it too. Like, I guess there are people out there that do that, but I don't do that. And as far as I know, I don't know anybody else that yeah, does. Yeah, I was say, I nobody I know does that. Like, yeah. I, I really don't know, other than back in the day, you could watch Cisco and Ebert, but those days are gone, man. And so what... Uh, Gene Shallot. <laughs> what? I mean, who cares? It's the it, it might be the same as a food critic. I suppose you have, uh, f- at least with food critics, you have a little bit more of a, like, uh, AAA has their diamond score. There's... Oh, I don't I don't know all the food critic awards, but mm-hmm. that seems to be like something that these restaurants boast is. And, and that's actually probably with the prices that they can charge, you know, and the, the decor that they have, the type of cuisine, the dress code. Like there are certain things that you can look at and say, I'm going to like something here. Mm-hmm. There's going to be something on the menu that I'm going to like here. But that doesn't exist with movies and music and stuff like that, because it's also like personal and subjective. And yeah, exactly. It's, it's about what, well, like you said, uh, if I could find a critic, I, I would follow that. I, you know, was lockstep with my opinion, but here's what the problem with critics, like what I saw today was, I saw this over and over again was what's the use of professional critics because the divorce between professional critics and the audience, it's getting wider as time goes on. Yeah. And here's what it is. Here's what it comes down to. And I guess kind of ties into the whole main subject is the studio wants to be able to use a aggregate of critics for their promotion. So they could say, you know, with their blurbs or they could say four out of or, five critics. Or four agree. Over, yeah. Overwhelming critics agree. They don't need individual critics. They just want to, without having to lie, say all these, you know, critics are loving this and, it's going to be, it's got Oscar buzz. It's got this because that's all it's good for. That's it's just, it's a signal to the average movie goer of, do I want to spend my time and money on this, which is all I've ever used it for, which is why I would, I go to Rotten Tomatoes and I look at user reviews to see what the movies, if it's, I'm not sure what the movie is going to be like, I, I will look at it to see what the tone is. Like it's kind of this kind of movie or that kind of movie. And then I'll look at the main numbers and then I'm like, all right, I guess it's probably worth my time. And that's it. I'm not dissecting somebody's critique of it because one of the things I saw said the moviegoer and the movie critic are not watching movies for the same reason. The moviegoer is watching to be entertained. The movie critic is a guy that or the girl that has gone through film school, has studied as an art form, knows all the ins and outs, knows all the terms, knows all the minutia of it. And they're looking at it as a like an art critic would like. What's the history behind it? What's the influences here? What's the statement being made? What's the what where they drop the ball mechanically? That's what they're looking at. And your average moviegoer doesn't give two flying fucks about that. Right. There's like, is it gonna be cool? Is it a good story? Is the acting good? 
Is there a good twist at the end? Is it Am boring? I going to be surprised by something? Yeah, exactly. In, in 2020, is this movie going to surprise me? Right. Is because this let's be showing honest. me something I haven't seen yet? Yes. That's it. And I don't care about the influences from, you know, Hitchcock and Cecil B. DeMille. And like, I don't give, I don't care about that. But that's what the movie critic cares about because that's what their life is. That's what they went to school for. So that's what they're basing this on when they're doing. And us as the moviegoers and as the movie producers don't care about that. So the industry of professional film critics is this weird circle jerk. Right. But <laughs> best and, way I can describe it. Yeah. And I mean, it's getting harder and harder to trust the opinions of non-professional critics, too, because you're getting these humongous like cynical, toxic fan bases. That oh, I know. Yeah, you're just, right. The they're taking over. Yeah. Bad. So, I mean, you you just have to kind of wade into it a little bit. And I say that as the guy that shits on Last Jedi every chance you get. <laughs> but I have, this is what I say about Last Jedi, because I'm defensive about it. So I'll just say this. You could take the entire movie and remake it with nothing but straight white men, and I would hate it for all the same reasons and just as much. In fact, I would have a new reason because now it's just full of straight white men and that's boring. <laughs> well, so, you like, know what? when you talk about toxic fan base, I try to make sure I'm not one of those fucking assholes. But okay. Well, here's something I can tell you. All right. Um, what is there's a phenomenon when um, when some when a president has been out of office for a certain amount of time, people warm up to them like you're yeah, always you're, right. you're always going to have. Yeah, you're always going to have your people that yeah, I hate George Bush. But then you've got these people that hated George Bush when he was office. He's been out of office for so long now that people have cooled off on them. Yeah, he wasn't so bad. He's kind of a nice guy. And they did that for Ronald. It's basically every president Mm -hmm. in the modern era anyway. uh, People tend to soften their opinion of people that they once vehemently hated. You know what I'm saying? Um, Do you know the the name? One exception would be like Richard Nixon. I don't think his... Reputation ever actually really recovered all that well. No, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Do you know no, the yeah, name of that yeah. phenomenon? Uh, I just would say rose-colored nostalgia glasses. I mean, seriously, that's about the best yeah. I could say. Well, like, it's a real thing. It's it's a real thing. And where I'm going with this is when the original, uh, when the when the prequels came out, Episode One, Two, and Three for Star oh. Wars, when they came out, I loved Episode One. Until I didn't, and <laughs> I, I was uh, caught up. Game of Thrones season eight. Okay, well, hold on. Let me let me just get my opinion out of the prequels because I I was mesmerized. I was intoxicated with Star Wars coming back with brand new stuff. I went and saw the special editions in the theater in you know '96, right? You know when they were hyping this up, and so Episode One came out. I loved it, and then I started to unpack it a little bit. And I hated Jar Jar Binks. And then all of a sudden, they could do no right. I hated, I hated Star Wars prequels. I hated them. Right. But, but enough time has gone by, and my opinion has softened so much so that I'm actually, I'm, I'm slowly easing back into the prequels, and they're actually really good. <laughs> I, I hate to say it because of how much I hated them, but they're actually good movies. You feel yeah, like a hypocrite, or you're betraying. I, I feel, or, yeah. I feel like I'm betraying myself from 20 years ago, but uh, it, it's they're good. They're they're not bad. Political, like if you strip away some of the things and can kind of just let them go, they're they're actually good. Now I haven't gotten to completely into the Clone Wars, but from what I've seen, 
they're okay. I've heard really good things, so I'm expecting to like them. But the new movies, so the new trilogy, I guess is what you would call them, um, The Force Awakens, liked it, but I understand what they did. Why? Like, it's not, they're not great movies. The Last Jedi, like, I want to like it so much. I just want to like it so much. And then The Rise of Skywalker, I went into it kind of like, okay, this is a Star Wars movie. I'd just be happy. Just be happy they're making a Star Wars movie. And it wasn't the best, but it was still tolerable. So really the standout for me is The Last Jedi as being a bad movie. And I feel like, (laughs) I I feel like if I give myself enough time, maybe I can ease in quicker and actually like The Last Jedi. And then Uh... I can... And then I can say solid nine movies. I I will say this. I'm actually I, I believe that you can do that. I, I I think I could see you get to that point. And I am jealous of that ability that you would have. <laughs> like I'm I right no bullshit right here right now. I am jealous that I think you would have the ability to someday come to like all those movies. Okay. Because well, I will never. I will never. I, I can't. <laughs> Like, I, I mean, I am not saying this as an excuse or as, like, I'm proud of it. I took The Last Jedi personally. And I fucking, <laughs> I did. And I can't get past it. I have to admit it. I have to, I have to purge myself of that. I took it personally. Like, I took it as a personal fucking slight. Because I hated it that much. Yeah. It was against you and you alone. Yes, right. Uh, I personally looked at me and said, fuck you. <laughs> so, when was the last time you watched the prequels? I'm talking one, two, and three. Jar Jar Binks, Anakin growing up. Well, uh, the bad acting of Christian Haydenson. Here's the thing about the prequels for me: I never hated them universally all the way through. Like I distinctly remember all three of those movies. I saw like midnight showings, you know, waited in line, all that crap. But I, actually, my brother got somehow. I'm not sure how he did it. Got us, me and him and his friends and my friends. We got us all tickets to see Phantom Menace. You know, the night before the actual premiere mm-hmm. so we all saw it and i thought pretty much what you thought i said they're going jar jar was stupid and the pod races were pretty fucking awful but the rest of it wasn't so bad but we're walking out of the theater and my my best friend was like well that was a pile of shit like <laughs> he hated it he thought it was like the worst thing he's like same thing jar jar pod races it's like i didn't i didn't give two shits about all this you know council meeting bullshit and it was so obvious who palpatine is like everybody thinks it's not that he's not the emperor there's they're an idiot like and it's kind of like started leeching my enjoyment of it but even then i still all three movies i could still pick out the stuff mostly the lightsaber battles that i thought were really cool like i love the lightsaber fights the really core because after the first trilogy as much as i love them was like a bunch of geriatrics whacking each other with broomsticks half the time yeah. So the over-the-top choreography of these prequels was really cool to me. The soundtrack with the added Duel of the Fates sound was really good. I liked... I, I picked out what I liked. So I didn't universally hate the prequel. I wasn't like everybody was like, fuck them all, you destroyed my childhood. I'm like, so very winding way to get back to your question. When's the last time I saw them? I've been watching off and on clips of it for 20 years. Yeah. Because I'll just rewatch. I'm like, man, I want to see Darth Maul and Obi Wan fight again, just for the fuck of it. So I'll watch that again. Or so I want to watch Anakin and Obi Wan fight at the end. Or I want to see Yoda do some flips. You know, shit like that. Like I, I will rewatch that stuff sometimes. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I, anybody listening that didn't like the prequels, 
I encourage you to maybe uh, give it a second go. Maybe <laughs> find somebody to talk to about it first and go in, you know, with some different colored glasses on. I just love the fact that we don't even try. We don't plan it. And we're back to Star Wars every time. How did that happen? Every time. That was my fault. <laughs> I was trying to skim past the Last Jedi stuff, and I can't. So that opens up the can of worms right there. But well, yeah, so I, to wrap up what I said, just once again, Hollywood definitely has a critic problem, but it's not the one I thought it was. It wasn't this shady back deal, backdoor deals. To It's just a critic echo chamber. It's just a tribe, tribalism, rearing its ugly head, just like everything else. And well, that's that's what I have. <laughs> Hollywood has an accounting problem, but it's a problem they like to have. Yeah, that's yeah, it's not a problem for them. <laughs> no, makes them lots of money. So, so because of their accounting problem, we get brand this big budget flops over and over again every year because mm-hmm. they don't have to feel the pain. For every well, End Game, there's a John Carter of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to hand it to Disney for taking some of those chances. You look like you're waiting for something. Oh no, I was. I was waiting for you to maybe snicker a little bit about Disney taking chances. But oh. <laughs> John Carter, Wrinkle in Time, you know, movies like that. And then you've got Pixar. Basically, that's just a money printing machine. Yeah. Well, I mean, so. Disney at this point is pretty much true. One of the uh, articles I came across, the conspiracy one was like, Disney's slowly taking over the internet. Yes. So, yeah. No more Pornhub. That's all I got to say. Rule 34. <laughs> That's what we get. Speaking of Rule 34, have you ever heard of the Streisand effect? Speaking of the internet. Streisand effect, where you think you're the most beautiful woman in the world, and you're really not? Oh, okay. No, the Streisand effect um, is when something is relatively unknown on the internet, and it's embarrassing to one person, and that one person tries to get it removed from the internet, and all of a sudden the internet's ears perk up and go, (laughs) oh, this thing that you didn't want us to notice, all of a sudden we're going to make a big deal? Well, That's called the Streisand effect. What did she do that? What would she do? Well, uh, there was a newspaper photographer that took a picture of her house, her residence in Malibu. And she, and, and the photographer wasn't, I don't know if the, it was like, oh, look how these Hollywood elites, they ruined the coastline. It was basically a piece on coastal erosion. Mm. And it happened to have her house there. So it was, let me see. Um, uh, Kenneth Adelman. So basically, Kenneth Adelman put a picture online of her uh, Malibu residence talking about the coastline erosion. It was a bunch of coastline photographs. It wasn't just hers. Anyway, um, so she filed a lawsuit to have image 3850 removed. It didn't even have her name on it. It had been downloaded from his website six times. Mm-hmm. She put in a lawsuit to have it removed. All of a sudden, it, it had 420,000 views. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie. Yep. And she actually sued him and lost and had to pay like a whole bunch of fees. So she got him rich and famous. Good for her. She's <laughs> That's <a good> right. <laughs> but I mean, it's called the Streisand effect now. And it's a phenomenon on the internet that essentially is the harder you work to have something removed, the harder the internet is going to push back against you to show everybody what you don't want to be seen. And the way I was tying that into rule 34 is there was a make a wish foundation kid who, uh, a little follow pony thing. Yes. You yeah, heard of this? I crossed that the other day on Reddit or something. I was like, Oh my God. Well, it, it was horrible, but it should not have been shocking. No. And it, in the story that was on Reddit wasn't a hundred percent true, but it was essentially 
for okay so i'll explain this to the audience real quick my yeah. little pony the modern my little pony not the 1980s my little pony like the you know 2000s version of my little pony cartoons has quite a following of grown men brody they're called bronies we, did, now, we should have touched on that last week i guess because <laughs> holy yeah. shit no brony we didn't do bronies we didn't do furries we we were very deficient so a, a small percentage of these bronies who enjoy My Little Pony. So grown men that enjoy this cartoon for little girls, okay? There's a lot of it, like the lore, the characters. the There's a lot that goes into My Little Pony. And I don't know if there's a hierarchy. I don't know exactly, but they are... Like, it's a town of My Little Ponies that they each have their own little attributes or whatever. And these grown men have then created their own fan fiction about these ponies and their attributes. And it's, <laughs> I, I struggle to call it weird because it's really, it makes a lot of sense to me that there are people that enjoy that kind of thing. But there's a small percentage of these people who then turn it into pornography. And so these My Little Pony characters on the internet are turned into sex objects. And they have cartoons, they have drawings they have all kinds of things they they dress up and reenact a lot of this stuff <laughs> but it is incredibly sexualized like straight up pornography with little girls toys or little go little girls cartoons so there's this kid who uh he on his make a wish foundation his make a wish thing was to have the my little pony creators create a pony for him yeah and it wasn't him it wasn't the kid. It was the parents, the mother of the kid who knew that there was this subset of people that basically porned everything on the Internet, and especially with the My Little Ponies, who actually publicly asked, please do not turn my child's character, my disabled, dying child's character into a <laughs> porn object. See, and, well, the thing I read was that the My Little Pony creators were begging not to do it, too, or... Right, and that's where the story kind of differed a little bit. Okay. The, the, the story, the story was the internet story was that the the they came out and said this pony we're creating is for a, a disabled dying child. Please don't turn it into one of your porn things. It was actually the mother that did it, and oh, she okay. pretty publicly on the internet like sent out a giant blast message to these bronies that are all about sexing up little girls' ponies and said. Don't turn my child's yeah. character into a porn object to which they immediately <laughs> did immediately turned this character into a yeah. graphic like thing. And so from what I'm understanding from the whole story, the kid that was dying, he, he was cool with it. Like that's probably what he wanted all along anyway, but <laughs> it, you know what I'm saying? So I'm immortal. <laughs> yes. I've been immortalized as this because of Cody. Poor never dies. Nope. But the mom, it just goes to show that just by the mom saying that, like yeah. if she hadn't said anything, there might've been one or two occurrences of this pony turning into a sex shop. And she probably wouldn't even have to see it or know that it existed. But instead she went out and called these people out and the internet responded with, okay, well, we're just going to do it a lot. Right. And, uh, there's a, there's a really good example of this Streisand effect. One of my favorites actually is, uh, Beyonce was at a performance and she had a picture taken of her. In oh, a, yeah. Uh, I've seen, like she's got an expression on her face. looks like. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. She's, she's, she's danced. She's in the middle of a dance. And like anybody who's not an idiot 
would understand that when you're performing and you're like in the middle of performing, there are going to be uncompromised positions. There's going to be like, even if you were blinking, but she's actually in the moment, she's like really in the moment dancing and somebody snapped a picture of her, put her on the internet and it's just unflattering. That's all. And if you know, you see that picture and you move on and you just, maybe you get a chuckle and then you move on. Make a joke about it. That's it. You know, but Beyonce wanted to have this picture removed from the entire internet to which the internet said, eh, no, it's going to be everywhere now. Yeah. That's the Streisand effect. Um, the idea, I guess, is that you're so arrogant and or insecure that you can't stand to not look 100% good all the time. Right. The unwashed masses are going to put you in your place. I mean, that's pretty much what it boils down to. There's another one going around the internet right now where a guy, he's like... Uh, overconfident maybe liquored up guy in a suit and he is being obnoxious in a business i don't i don't know if it was a restaurant or a lounge or something and they're trying to kick him out and he actually headbutts a guy and there was somebody else in the restaurant that puts him in a headlock and takes him to the floor and the guy i mean it just looks bad for this guy he looks like a total and complete jackass he attacks a staff member and Mm -hmm. then gets his ass handed to him and he this happened like years ago years yeah, and it the video is just now surfacing, and he has sued every place that has put this video. Like he, the kid's got enough money where, like he's got millions and millions of dollars. So legally, he's trying to take the steps legally to have this video of him being an asshole removed from the internet. And if you've been on Reddit in the last couple of days, it's everywhere. People hmm. are like, "Don't let this die." This is. And so the Streisand effect is is really coming into full effect with this guy where you might see a jackass headbutt somebody in a restaurant and then you move on to the next thing and not even give it another thought. But apparently this guy's made such a big deal out of it that now he is famous because of it. Yeah. Well, so. that's almost the entirety of the um, whole Karen movement thing. Yeah. Like, oh, she's a Karen because basically it's like these women think they're top of the heap and they're gonna let everybody know it when they're mildly inconvenienced and i'm gonna talk to your manager and blah 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 blah. but just the name karen it's a it's a wide paintbrush that's slathered everything and you don't even notice every single one of them you're gonna watch the video or read the anecdote or whatever and you're gonna move on but if ever one of them started saying no i am being harassed i this is this is racial this is misogynist and started a campaign she would live immortally and not for right. a good reason. Right. The same for Boomer. Yeah. Just be in the category. Don't be representative of the category if you exactly. want to have good mental health. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, anytime somebody just goes against the grain in order to... Don't be the poster it. child. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the Streisand effect. I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Very good. Do you have anything else before we do some trivia? You know, funnily enough, I don't know why I actually came across this. And you, you're the one that farted in me Sniglet. Oh, yeah. Sniglets from not necessarily the news. Not necessarily the news. Yeah, that was weird that you mentioned that to me. And also that I had like a ocean's worth of memories come rushing back to me. Something like I've forgotten about forever. Like just was out of my brain. You're like, not necessarily the news. And I was like, oh, and I was like <laughs> stiffened in shock. And yeah. all these memories came rushing back to me. Yeah. And I tell you what, like it's as nostalgic as I am. I'm st- I still surprise myself with stuff like that and that's why i like it's stupid and i guess maybe i'm going to be outing myself a little bit but one of the things i look for on ebay all the time is hbo guides from the 80s 
because yeah. one of the, one of the things that my family typically did was or me I don't I can't speak for the rest of them but I I'd take a blank VHS tape which on standard definition was usually about six hours and I'd throw it into the VCR I'd turn it on HBO and I'd hit record and what I got is what I got yeah so you might get you know half of a movie at the beginning and then a full two movies and then another half a movie or you might you know you might get like these <laughs> HBO once in a while would do like these like 15 20 minute HBO promo bumpers where they'd talk about certain things or whatever and you just like there was no DVR so this is how you yep. watch that when you you couldn't be in front of the TV or on that channel the whole time you know those types of things so I've I love looking for HBO guides on on eBay. I still, I've only got one, um, but I'm, I'm looking for those old HBO guides because every once in a while I'll find some, somebody that scanned one and I'll kind of go through it a little bit. Cause that's, that's how I spent a lot of my time is looking through the HBO guide to see what was going to be on at what time. So I could record something or so I could sit and watch it. And, um, you know, every once in a while, something like that will pop out at me, like not necessarily the news. And I'll be like, dang, I remember that. <laughs> Or there, there's all kinds of 80s movies that I may have seen once. They, they like informed me or shaped me or like I influenced me in some way, and I don't even know it. I don't remember it. Um, there's a lot of movies that I may have seen once in the 80s, and it's in there. It's rattling around in the memory banks, but it takes like just, mm-hmm. and it's easier now with YouTube and Google and those types of things. It's easier to stumble across things, but I mean that's just by chance. If I had some sort of HBO guide, I could sit down and read and see what was, <laughs> you know, like that. If only, that, if only I find that. If only I could find. And you know how much HBO guides are going for on eBay? Take a guess. Let's let's just say uh, 1982, uh, August 1982 HBO guide. How much? Um, you- I'm going to say, I'm just going to, nice route. I'm going to say 50 bucks. Yeah, that's, that's pretty high. Okay. They're typically, they're typically going for about 20 bucks a pop. Oh, still. I'm kicking myself in the ass because a couple of weeks ago somebody had 12, no, 13 HBO guides. One of them was a duplicate, but it was 12 individual months um, from the 80s. And they had, the starting bid was $10. And I, I bid it up to $11.50. And I'm like, ah, those are going to go, that's, that, that's going to go for like 100 bucks. It, it went for 12 bucks. <laughs> and now that person that bought it has piecemealed it out and put them on eBay for like 20 bucks a piece. Yeah. But let's see. I'm just going to look on uh, eBay real quick. HBO Guide, 1982. Let's just put 1982 in there. Oh, here's one for 12.85. That's not bad. 14.95. So there's, there, I stand corrected. There's some of them that are under 10 bucks, but not many. And that's not going to be the final bid. Those aren't buy it now kind of. Thing. And for some reason, the 80s are the more expensive ones. You get into the 90s. I'm sorry, you get into the, I mean, some of the 70s and stuff like that, you'd think that would be really vintage, really hard to find, and they're not as expensive. Yeah, maybe because it wasn't off the ground yet. Like, people don't remember much. Right, it wasn't. If you're buying it for the nostalgia, then the 80s is going to be the sweet spot. Oh, yeah, 1984. You know, that was really, they were, as far as I'm concerned, because my, we didn't have HBO, we didn't have cable in my town until 1982. Um and once cable came to town, everybody had it, and everybody had HBO. So it was like everybody could watch the same programming on HBO and talk about the same programming on HBO. And I want to think that that was happening nationwide, that there was like this big cable sweep in these rural areas, because I grew up in rural Maine. 
I'd have to imagine that there was, you know, an explosion of cable network uh, across the rural parts of the country. And if that's the case, like the 80s would have been boom time for movies on HBO or not mm-hmm. necessarily movies, but programming on HBO, boxing matches, um, you know, stuff that is now pay-per-view. That was kind of on HBO and that was it was premium cable, but, you know, it's nothing like one event for 70 bucks. You know, you you pay-per-view some of these MMA fights for who knows how much they're going for now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just, I like that kind of stuff. I like to be able to flip through old things. Another one is, <clears throat> have you ever seen the Wish Book Project? No, nah, that's not Do you know what the Sears Wish Book was? No. I know Sears had a catalog, but I never looked. Um, so Sears Wish, um, Sears Wish Book would come out around Christmas time. And it was essentially uh, like all the toys. They, like the, 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 the beginning, the opening part of it, I guess, was adult. Um, like things that you could get adults for Christmas. You know, flannel pajamas, uh, Walkman stereo, you know, Walkman radios, you know, those types of things. And then as you got to the back of the wish book, it would be just straight toys. So one page would be dedicated to Transformers. You know, one page would be dedicated to G.I. Joe. And, of course, the toys would be set up in such a way that, you know, with these elaborate sets, there'd be a page for Atari games. And so you could just open up this wish book and just stare. And, and this this <laughs> isn't it's not an 80s phenomenon. The wish book goes way back. Yeah. You know, and it was just this catalog that got sent out. And there wasn't Amazon. There wasn't, you know, shopping online, of course, back then. We had a Sears out not an outlet, but we had a Sears in town that so these you could take the Sears catalog, you could open it up to whatever you wanted, you could order it, and it would be shipped to the Sears location, and you could go down to the Sears and buy it. That's I mean that's how you got your stuff. And so all these people, grandmothers, would get the Sears wish book and they'd give it to their grandkids and they'd say, uh, Cir- yeah. <laughs> "Circle the circle what you want." And, uh, and you're like, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it was a big deal. Like the Sears, the, the wish book was a big deal. So there's this thing called wishbookweb.com and it's a project that these people, I, God bless them. They've scanned all the wish books or as many as they can find. And so when I go back to like the 1980s and I look through the wish book catalog, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm feeling those nostalgic moments again where I'm flipping through and I find the G.I. Joes and I'm like, eh, I would have want that one, that one, that one, that one. <laughs> Just like imagine yourself playing with what but, vehicle am I going to put it in? That's and What's funny is like I'll turn to a page and I'll be like, oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> I for, you know, and there's so many things in that catalog that, you know, just bring back those memories. Just like not necessarily the news. So I'm constantly having those the wave or the, the rush of nostalgia. I guess for me, it'd be old Wizard magazines. Wizard yeah. used to be a comic book. It was like a magazine about comic books. What was going on with new comic books coming out, reviews, articles. I used to love Wizard. I would read it to see you know, ooh, what's going to be happening and what am I missing. And If I could get some Wizards from the early 90s, that would have been really cool. Okay, so a vintage 90s lot of 14 Wizard and Comics magazines. You ready for this? Yeah. $22.99. Shit. And that is, I probably have to go down to the description. To the see funny it. thing is, I bet I would have so I would have had some of those. Like I, I got it every month religiously. So I bet you anything, whatever they, what's in that stack, I would have had a lot of them, if not all of them, at one point. Yeah. Same with uh, Nintendo Power. 
Nintendo Power is so expensive on eBay. Yeah. Oh God. That, yeah, yeah. I used to get Nintendo Power and just read it cover to cover. And here's 16 Wizard, lot of 16 Wizard, the Guide to Comics magazine, vintage, early 1990s, 20 bucks. Oh, but the shipping is uh, they'll get you. Oh, they get you on the shipment. Yeah. No, it was 43 dollars for shipping. Holy shit! Never mind. Yeah. Oh. But, I mean, that's how eBay works. Yeah, I, yeah it might be a low bid, but I'm going to get you on shipping. And I think it's funny that I'm reading this to you when you've got boxes and boxes of comic yeah. books you're no, yeah. trying to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not that nostalgic. I'm not going to get this. But <laughs> See, I am. I'd love to get these and put them on my coffee table as conversation pieces. Like, uh, it's once my children are grown and out of the house, I want to get some Fangoria magazines. Oh, for, right. <laughs> for, you know, early 90s Fangoria. <laughs> And leave them on the coffee table or uh, Hit Parader, Circus Magazine, Starlog. I'd love to get some of those magazines and just have them out on the coffee table so when we have guests over, they can thumb through them. Oh, you gonna you would actually let people touch them? Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> like I wouldn't keep them under glass, but they'd be great conversation. <laughs> One day, people are going to be searching for iPhones on eBay so they can put them on their coffee table to spark conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Remember this thing we used to carry around in our pockets? God, crazy. Yeah, before we had them surgically implanted into our right. brains. Now it's in my eyeball. It's great. Well, I thought, I don't know, I thought I could read a couple of them, see if you could figure out what they are from the word. Some of the ones that stuck out to me. Some of the sniglets. Oh, sniglets. We're be- yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> sniglets. Go. Um, kidnappage. Na- uh, kidnapkinage. Kidnapkinage? Kidnapkinage. Is that when you put a napkin... On your child, like a, a bib? <laughs> no, well, think of a kidnap with a napkin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So is it kidnapping a child? Yes. You stuff the napkins in your mouth and shut them up. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's the act of purposely taking more napkins than necessary at a fast food restaurant. Oh. I guess we didn't even start off with saying what a sniglet was. A sniglet is a, um, a, straight, a word to describe everyday things, but things that don't already have a word to describe them yes it was uh, there was a tv show on hbo that was a comedy news program called not necessarily the news and they do some of these interesting little little segments sniglets was a segment where they did just that it was a guy that would just describe some mundane thing but there was no word for it and he'd create a word for it yeah and then watchers would send their own words in like listeners and email and blah 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 yeah, you know, me and my my dad and I came up with one that we sent in. Oh yeah, what what's that? It was uh, I I want to say it was like perturbaritis. Well, I mean, like technically, like procrastinate was a sniglet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't want to do this thing, so I'm gonna masturbate. So you you know, procrastinate. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, hydro condiment. Pouring water on things instead of ketchup. The watery discharge that accumulates in the mustard or ketchup bottle that comes out first. It makes your bread all wet. Yep, I got you. Uh, bisexual. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, having both plastic and paper grocery bags. Yeah, able to accept either paper or plastic sacks for groceries. There without, you go. Without any sense of guilt. All right. Uh, there's a ton of them. Sluvers. <laughs> Sluvers. I, I got nothing on that. Soap sliver, basically a remnant of a slo- of a soap. Too small to use, but too big to throw away. <laughs> oh, my wife hates those. See, I don't just stick them in the new bar of soap. Make one continuous, everlasting bar of soap. It's not that bad. Yeah. 
I end up just getting another bar of soap and leaving it in the shower. <laughs> She's constantly bugging me about those. Uh, let's see here. Beasel bug. Diesel bug? B with a, like, boy. Beasel bug. Beasel bug. When you're, I don't know. Satan in the form of a mosquito that gets in your bedroom at three in the morning and cannot be cast out. <laughs> beasel bug, beasel bug, beasel bug. No. All right, then. The last one I thought was pretty good here. Let's see. Foreplay. Or no, sorry. Foreploy. <laughs> it's when you go in for foreplay, but it's just a ruse. <laughs> a, any misrepres- misrepresentation about yourself for the purpose of getting laid. <laughs> foreploy. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, there's a lot, but yeah. Sniglets. Came across them. Thought they were good. So that's what I got. All right. You want to do some trivia? Ah, I, I do have some trivia too. Yes. I have Ghostbusters trivia. You have Ghostbusters trivia? Yeah. Uh, Then why don't you go first? Here we go. All right. So everybody remembers Ghostbusters, I'm sure. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? So on the set, Dan Aykroyd called Slimer the ghost of who? On the set? On set. So not a line from the movie, but on set, he called Slimer the ghost of somebody. And it's a person? Person that you know, I know, we all know. Uh, I'm trying to think of the time. So Ghostbusters came out in 84, would have been filmed probably in 83, would have been somebody that was dead in 1983. You're actually really got a good detective work going on here, yes. Well, I'm just trying to think who would have been a big deal that they were dead at the time that was a crummy bastard. Well, think a little bit overweight, like to eat a lot, probably funny, not John Candy. Yeah, John Candy wasn't dead yet. He wasn't dead yet. Curly's the only thing coming to mind, but um, I know it's not that. I gave you half a hint. John. John Belushi? John Belushi. Dan Aykroyd's Slimer's the ghost of John Belushi. (laughs) That's funny. All right, what porn star was an extra in Ghostbusters? Famous porn star was an extra in Ghostbusters. I don't know that many famous porn stars, but I'm going to say Jenna Jameson. Male porn star. Oh, Ron Jeremy. Roger, the only one that anybody ever knows, Ron Jeremy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he was in the crowd at the towards the end. Yeah, behind the police do not cross barricade. Uh, yeah. Later started a porn parody called This Ain't Ghostbusters Triple X. <laughs> <laughs> uh so Ghostbusters was the highest grossing comedy of all time. It would keep the title until the release of what movie? Which comedy knocked Ghostbusters off the pedestal? Of what's the pedestal? The highest grossing comedy of all time. City Slickers. <laughs> Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually never saw City Slickers. Uh, City Sticklers. Really? Slickers. Sticklers. Slickers. God damn. This is me not drinking. I still can't talk. City Sticklers. Stick with that. All right. So everybody okay. knows this. Two of the main roles are developed with Eddie Murphy and somebody else in mind. Okay, I'll just say it. Two of the main roles were developed with Eddie Murphy and John Candy in mind. What were the roles they were supposed to play? Of Eddie Murphy and John Candy. Two of the main roles were with Eddie Murphy and John Candy in mind. One of them's pretty obvious, not to be <laughs> a racist. Um, I honestly don't know. Not even Eddie Murphy? Terrible for not knowing his name. <laughs> You're just going to say, say it. Say what you want to say. Say it. Say the phrase. He was supposed to be the black guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you make me say that? Hey, after all the Jew thing I got in trouble with. I... 
No, it's actually bothered me because I love that's one of my all time favorite movies. And I <laughs> honest to God cannot come up with his name right now. Winston Zeddemore. Well, OK, Winston. Winston. Yes. China. OK, so John Candy. So, yeah, Eddie Murphy was supposed to be Winston. John Candy's a bit harder. The and just as an aside, John Belushi was supposed to be Venkman. So it's not Venkman. Egon. Not It's not one of the Ghostbusters. The secretary? No. Yeah, John Candy's going to be the secretary. Yeah, I guess it could work. Oh, the uh, uh, Keymaster. Keymaster. Uh, Lewis Tully, yes. Lewis. Did you know that Lewis Tully, when he was in his apartment and he had the party and there was that, like, ditzy blonde? Yeah. Do you know who she is? She... Oh, God, she married Casey Kasem. Yeah, it was and Casey took him, Kasem's and wife. took him for a ride. Like Hell yeah, she did. Yeah, like, like, fucked him over, apparently. Or his maybe his kids or something, something like that. I can't remember. But yeah, like, kept him, like, almost captive in the house. Yeah. yeah. She's from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She was in something else. She was in Cheers. She was Carla's ex-husband's new wife. And they, they were in a really short-lived Cheers spinoff called The Tortellis. The Tortellis, yeah. Yeah. She was also in, in uh, Growing Pains. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she made the 80s rounds. Well, okay. Last, I don't know, second to last question. The party scene that you're talking about, mm-hmm. what is distinctive about it? From, is this? from Rick Moranis' standpoint, I guess. Rick Moranis did something distinctive when he was doing the scene. Uh, well, he was hosting. Don't he, think less part, was, more actor. Oh, he had to pee? Yeah, he improvised pretty much the whole thing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I that, kind of always thought that, like, he had to go piss. Like, he's got that, you maybe, know what I mean? I, could have been. Maybe that's why he improvised. He's like, I can't remember the script. All I know is i got to piss. <laughs> but Fuck it, let's you, just do this. When you think back to that scene, can't you see that it looks like he's got to take a piss the whole time? Yeah. Well, the stuff he started spouting off about accounting and shit, I was like, wow, he knew accounting. Good for him. <laughs> okay, and the last question. The creepy, demonic voice of Zool was performed by who that was involved with the movie? Sigourney Weaver. Yes. She she dug deep and pulled that out. <laughs> there is no Dana. Only Zool. That's my guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ivan, Ivan Reitman. Oh, really? Yes. Director Ivan Reitman did the creepy, demonic Zool voice. And that is my Ghostbusters trivia. I thoroughly enjoyed that Ghostbusters trivia. <laughs> Except for the fact that I couldn't remember Winston's name. <laughs> I liked it. If it makes you feel any better. I enjoyed that, yes. I don't remember shit. I I don't remember the secretary's name, Annie Potts. Now that I've now that I'm talking about it, Janine. Janine. Ghostbusters. What do you want? And have you seen the commercial that she's in? And she looks identical. No. She, she looks like she hasn't changed aged a bit. Yeah. There's a there's a modern Ghostbusters commercial, and she's in it. And I don't know what they're selling. I don't remember. I just remember seeing it and thinking that must have been. How would they have known to film that way back then? <laughs> and then I did a little research, and it's really her. And it's like, holy shit, she has not aged. I think she's in that young Sheldon. She's like the grandma in that or something. I'm going to look so, it up. She's also in Who's Harry Crumb, which I keep telling myself i got to watch again. It's a great movie. Yeah, if you go to uh, YouTube, Annie Potts reprises her Ghostbusters role in a new ad campaign. Mm. And she, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell. You can't tell that she's aged at all. Stop listening. Go listen. <laughs> go watch the video. Come back. That's right. Um, all right. So I've got a little bit of trivia for you. I have two trivia questions. Super. One of them is like, if you get it wrong, I'm actually. I think we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to stop the podcast. Oh we'll, God. We'll, we'll be done. 
I, I don't Too think much I pressure. Can, <laughs> I don't think I can continue the podcast if you get uh, this. The second one, I don't expect you to get, but if you do get it right, I will be so fucking impressed. Let's do this. I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> what television series has the highest number of episodes? Highest number of episodes? Yep. Not not seasons. Highest number of episodes. I mean, my first thought is Simpsons, but I feel like that's too obvious. No, it's The Simpsons. Thank okay. God you got it right, because... <laughs> well, the way you played it up, too, I'm like, okay, because, I mean, there's something like 60 Minutes has been on air for longer and shit like that, so I don't know. Right. The, no, I'm I'm series, not not yeah. like a newscast or right, anything right, like right. that. Um, do you know what's number two? It's been on for a long time. I don't know. It's Family Guy. So, uh, South Park. Nope. Nope. Wrong, wrong decade. The, the last air date for this was 1975. Bonanza. You're close. I close enough to probably give that to you. Bonanza had 431 episodes. This one, Gunsmoke, had 635, uh, okay. whereas ah. The Simpsons has 682. Huh. I mean, Simpsons just passed the mark a couple years ago, not that long yeah. ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Law and Order Special Victims Unit has 478. Jeez. Lassie had 591. Man, can you imagine stuff like Gunsmoke and Bonanza? That was going on for decades. Like there are people that watch that. That was the focus of like their entire entertainment universe. And now barely anybody remembers it even existed. Yep. Wow. <laughs> That'll be the Simpsons someday. No, mm-hmm. well, Simpsons will always be a touchstone of the culture of America. Always. NCIS 398 episodes. Uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's getting way down there now. There's some things that are still on TV right now that are like shocking that are up there with the other ones, like Blue Bloods. I mean, that's 218 episodes. The procedurals, man. It's easy, easy, easy stuff. Churn them out. And what's the mark? 100? 100 is, means it's prime for syndication. Is it? Okay. Yeah, I think, I think once a TV show gets to the 100 episode mark, that it's basically ready for syndication. Seinfeld, 180 episodes. Stop just in time. Yep. But, I mean, it's shocking that it didn't even make 200. <clears throat> one, well, season, one season short of 200. South Park had an episode, their 100th episode, where they're basically making fun of 100 episodes. They're like, no show should go past 100 episodes. It becomes nonsensical and crazy and gets stupid. Of course, South Park has been, it's got to be in the 300s at least, if not 400s. But This is interesting. That 70s show, 200, right on the nose. Ah, wow. I'm going to get down to... Uh, so 20-something episodes too many. Rules of engagement, 100 episodes on the dot. Hmm. Anyway, on to my next trivia question. All right. I, this is the one that's going to impress you, right? I'm ready. It will impress me. You've heard of the song The Final Countdown by Europe. I have. And you know whose theatrics include <laughs> the song. It has nothing to do with him. Damn it! No. I was like, Job, Job, Job! No, what's going to impress me is uh, in the song, the lyrics, it's the final countdown. They're taking a rocket and they're leaving Earth. Where are they going? Heaven. Come on now. Think it through. Damn it, Europe. Space Europe. <laughs> it is. This planet is considered the Europe of outer space. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Uh... <laughs> they say it in the second verse. I guess I never really listened to it. Too many times all the way through. Um, da, 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 da. Venus. Yes! Aha! 
We're headed for Venus, Venus. <laughs> hey, it's still we stand tall. You said you were going to say your third favorite Madonna song on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I did, didn't I? Yeah. Because your uh, favorite was, which one was your favorite? Uh, this is how bad, this is how bad my brain is. I have a <laughs> terrible brain. It is, uh, name a Madonna song. Come on. Well, I said my favorite might be Live to Tell. And you said that's your third favorite, but you that's, had to explain okay, why. Okay, Tell is my third favorite. My second favorite. No, I got to say my favorite first. I'll look at Madonna songs. <laughs> I love it so much. What's the name of it? No, I'm just saying it's my favorite Madonna song. It's, I mean, that was crazy for you. Okay. Crazy for you off Vision Quest, 1985. That's number one. Uh, number two is, or number three is Live to Tell. Number two is Like a Prayer. Ah, uh-huh. life is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Crazy for you, like a prayer. So you had these like deep-seated reasons behind it. Nostalgia reminded you of something. I said "Live to Tell" because I just I kind of like the way it sounds. I don't know it's from the from the album True Blue. "Live to Tell." Yep. Well, it's from a Sean Penn movie too. So, but I don't know which one. I never saw it. I just remember it's in the video. You see him driving around or something, and then he uh, smacked her around, and there you go. Well, they were married. Yeah, and he smacked. He tied her to a chair. All kinds of like he abused her. <laughs> it was on the film Fire with Fire. Mm. Okay. Originally composed by Patrick Leonard for the score of the film Fire with Fire, the instrumental was shown to Madonna, who decided to use it for then-husband Sean Penn's film At Close Range. So Madonna's version appeared on At Close Range. The instrumental version was on the score for Fire with Fire, which now I'm going to have to go look that up. <laughs> fire with fire. That looks like uh, looks like a good little uh, 80s, 1986 uh, romantic drama film. Hidden gem. Starring Virginia Madsen, Ooh. Craig, Craig Sheffer, and Kate Reed. Virginia Madsen has a top, top-rated rack. She has a... Uh, <laughs> she's a very uh, statuesque woman. She was in a movie that I was on set for. Really? Yep. Mr. North. Mm-hmm. My family went to Rhode Island, and we went and saw the mansions in Pro- I don't think it's Providence. Anyway, the shore, they have mansions there, and they're all hotel- uh, not hotels, museums now. And we took a tour of one, and uh, they were filming Mr. North, starring Anthony Edwards, and I got to see Angelica Houston. Oh, wow. You're practically Hollywood royalty right now. Well, I do have... What's your accounting look like? <laughs> you know what? You can look at my six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon and see that my pedigree is um, pretty stout. Well, how did we do? We did... Oh, shit. Two and a half hours. It'll probably end up being just under. Yeah. But I'm going to change the parameters. I'm going to change the level of silence that we cut out. So oh, really? it, we may end up with a little bit more silence. Get ready for all the coughs and snipples. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get get rid of throat get clearing. Ready for the throat clearings off mic. And but we'll see. <laughs> I do that a lot that you never hear. Like yeah. Every once in a while, I just go, mm-hmm, and, and it never shows gonna, up, but now you're going to hear it. You're going to hear every single one. <sighs> Virginia Madsen's been in a, man, she's been in some real. Put her in Pornhub. See what happens. No, I'm not ah, really right. She's been in a movie called Her Smell. Can't believe she, that'll show up <laughs> one of the later years. He's a candy man. The candy man can. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> All right, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna head out. All right. Well, this is Tom Krusty Jocksock with them. <laughs> wow, that's a callback. I like it. Yeah, saying dip me in your Monday milk. All I got is I'm, I'm Bob Highly Critical Scully <laughs> saying Oak Nuggets. Uh, Oak Nuggets, but see ya. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.